Testing, testing. Testing? One, two, three. Testing. Mic check. Hey, what are you guys doing? Cool shit. We have a word love, right? And we use that same word for platonic love, erotic love, love of fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. And in other societies, you know, they'll have dozens of words, dozens of ways to slice that emotion up. Hello and good morning. And welcome to Primitively Speaking. We are speaking today with professor of anthropology and TED Talk alumni. I know, I just made that up on the way here. TED Talk X. X alumni. Yeah. Um, Dr. John Baker, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We're well, so excited. We're so excited. It's palpable. <laughs> you know, I have to admit, I always wanted to take an anthropology class in college, but I, 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 I never was able to. So I've, I've been reading the wiki page for anthropology. <laughs> no, I, I want to know, um, I think our listeners would like to start with some baseline knowledge mm -hmm. of the anthropological perspective. Absolutely. And what you do. Well, um, the thing that makes anthropology different from pretty much any other subject is, can already be understood by looking at it, what it means. It means literally the study of humans. Okay. And so the way that's been laid out you know, because of the way the discipline has evolved and everything, the way that's been laid out is that we can look at humans as cultural beings, which is mo what most people think. We mm -hmm. know we've got the Kwakiutl, we've got the Japanese, we've got the Los Angeles millennial subculture or whatever. But we also have... That's us. We're thriving. Exactly. <laughs> and you are definitely worth studying. And then we have um, the biological side of things. So... Uh, in anthropology, we explicitly remember that we're talking about an animal, okay, uh, a very uh, unique kind of animal, but not as unique as many people might think, which is one of the things I want to get into today. And then we look at the fact that this human animal that grows up in a culture has a past, which mm -hmm. is what archaeologists bring to the table. So we try to reconstruct to the best we can about how things got to be the way they are. And then the last component is language. So when we're trained as anthropologists in the United States, we also tend to get at least some degree of, of training in what linguistics is all about. So, you know, talking about the questions about how does, how does language shape the way we perceive the world? Does it create the way we understand the world? If you or I had grown up in a different language, would we be living in a different world? So really what it is, it's a, it's a very holistic discipline and I like to I like to um, joke with my colleagues. You know, they they say that you know mathematics is the queen of the academic disciplines. Well, I like to say anthropology is the empress because <laughs> that. anything can be understood from an anthropological perspective. You know, in our field we have anthropology of work, anthropology of politics, anthropology of sex, anthropology of drugs and rock and roll, wow. anthropology of consciousness, anthropology of religion. So what it, what it brings to the table is the idea that people all around the world have certain basic things in common because of our biological, psychological nature, but those things are drawn out and manifested and valued differently in different societies. Does okay. that mm -hmm. provide yes. a small sense. amount of clarity? Yes. So when we yes. talk, you know, for example, talking about happiness, 
when I first was contacted by by you, Elise, and yeah. talking about happiness, one of the first things that came into my mind is the idea that, you know, probably coming from a very early 21st century Western notion of what happiness must be. And that is, you know, a very, very thin slice of the pie. So, and that's a really good segue because I was wondering, you know, through that anthropological lens, you know, how do, and I guess we need to start, you know, specific to our culture that we're living in. Mm -hmm. How do you define happiness through a Western lens, an anthropological now and before now, because I'm sure before now right. would apply. Well, you know, in the in the West, and this is something that goes back hundreds of years. We have this influence on the or this emphasis on the individual, and it's not something that I've really studied in detail. So, if you were to bring a different scholar in, uh, you might get a different perspective. Mm-hmm. But in my own particular impression, I think a lot of it comes from the Christian tradition, because in Christianity. Uh, one of the primary goals, if not the primary goal of life, is to attain salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that puts it all on us as individuals. And so consequently, everything radiates out from me, right? Two temptresses, three temptresses that I'm in the room right now. <laughs> I, Feminism! <laughs> this, we're not creating a, a, neg- a hostile work environment here, I hope. No, but if you are, you'll get a lawsuit later. Three temptresses that I have to navigate my way successfully through if I am to get to the real purpose of life, which is eternal salvation. That's a very different perspective that already is put into us from small childhood, in my childhood as well, Mm -hmm. and then if we grew up in a society that had a more collective perspective. So I think that, you know, just to just to start off the notion that that in our society happiness is very much uh, an egocentric thing. And I don't mean that in the way that, you know, we say, oh, that person's an egocentric. I mean it derives from how I understand myself and how I mm-hmm. see my relationships with others. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of the anthropological perspective is that we can step out of that and see that as one version an important one because it's the mm-hmm. one you and I live. Mm-hmm. Right. But at that moment when we're able to step out and see that there are other perspectives, it's what well, it was one of the most liberating moments of my intellectual life when I realized that everything I'd ever been taught about how I had to be was in fact arbitrary and relative. It was a construct. Yeah. And now is that literally just it? Is it the fact that on spirituality you just said – um, there's this eternal salvation that everyone is going towards, right? And if you're doing it according to one culture, exactly. And so Western-wise, it's like everyone be who you are. There's all these different versions of finding that, and you also could never get it, right? It's like I was saying to someone once, like, oh, but you know, I don't know how I feel about this whole God thing. Like, I don't have proof, and they're like, none of us have proof. That's the whole point. So I wonder if it is it that collective unknown that actually brings people together in the collective sense. Well, mm, I would suppose that would have something to do with it. But again, I want to get a little little anthropological because yeah. from my perspective, we really need to kind of like lay it out there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's go back to the really the basic part. You know, we are – and this is, this is my own approach. I, I work from what I call a biocultural perspective. And the, the basic assumption of biocultural anthropology is that we are biocultural or we are biological organisms – whose primary way of 
interacting with and understanding the world is shaped by our culture. So before we can even talk about culture, we need to understand a little bit about what it means to be a biological organism. Mm. So we can talk about, you know, a little baby human popping out. Mm -hmm. And there are some genetic programs that that little baby human carries with them, courtesy of the ancestors. Mm -hmm. And those programs then determine the development. You know, in, in very simple ways, you're going to have blue eyes or green eyes, blonde hair or red or mm -hmm. whatever. But those programs are also affecting how the brain is developing. So we now know that as neurons in the brain begin to go through cell division and they begin to ramify, in other words, they begin to connect with others, they follow little chemical trails. And there are certain areas of the brain that are supposed to, this is quotation marks, supposed to connect with other parts of the brain. So these cells are following these little chemical trails. And when I was uh, in graduate school and I would look at, you know, books that show an atlas of the brain, it was, um, it was beautiful and it was symmetrical. It was like, you know, if you remember the old Tom, I'm dating myself, the Thomas Guide to, <laughs> I remember the, those. to the freeways of Los Angeles, right? Oh, yeah. They never showed all the cars on it and they never showed all the construction. It was just all these beautiful cables connecting together. And it, in these drawings that, that these anatomical illustrators had produced, everything was symmetrical and gorgeous. And there's some work that's coming out now because of new brain imaging techniques. Some of it's at UCLA uh, under what's called the connectome. So the connectome, just like we each have our own genome, our own set of genes, that's now being realized we each have our own connectome. So those are imaging uh, or images that have been created that show how a part of my brain, one side is actually really connected to the other. And it's anything but a clean bunch of intersections and interchanges, right? There's like, oh, look, that little road went off there and God knows why, right? Maybe <laughs> that's why I have no sense for rhythm, right? And <laughs> what we're realizing is that already at the neurological basis, every single one of us is different. Mm. And then you throw then you throw the receptors on and the neurotransmitters, right? We all have different numbers of receptors in each one of our cells. Yeah. We're producing dozens and dozens of neurotransmitters at any one moment, right? I think you mentioned uh, one of you dopamine in, in yes. one of your earlier podcasts, yeah. right? Yes. A lot of people love that dopamine, right? It's big. And it's great. <laughs> and but there are different there are different types of dopamine receptors. So if if it was possible just to like inject each of us with a certain amount of dopamine, each of us would respond somewhat differently, differently. to that, right? Yeah. So, yeah. The, so the upshot is that every one of us is unavoidably unique. And every one of us, because of our own tra trajectory and history, every one of us is unavoidably dynamic. Mm -hmm. You are never in the same place twice. So if you ask me about happiness today then part of my understanding of happiness is going to be based on yesterday. And if you would have asked me a week ago, that week in between wouldn't have been there. Mm -hmm. So it was deep thought for <laughs> no, Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the cappuccino. Of course, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, I was curious because you we were we kind of started off with talking about Western culture. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to know 
um, from the anthropological perspective, which culture, Western or Eastern, do you think actually breeds contentment and breeds happiness? And you can even include More that than with, others. Maybe. Yeah, and you can even include that with like Christianity versus Buddhism. Well, there again, I think um, we have to be careful on how we define the term. So I think the same thing happens with regard to other societies. We're defining happiness today primarily from a, a self point of view. So in other words, happiness begins with me and I can achieve it through having the right stuff or knowing the right people or having the right kind of job or living in the right place. That is one culture's way of doing it. Other societies will look for happiness, contentment, whatever, as coming from inside. So rather than being, if I have this list of things that I'm happy, mm -hmm. that I have, then I must by definition be happy. Rather, it would be about a mindset, creating a mindset that you plug into whatever the circumstances are. And from my understanding, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic and and after that kind of fell by the wayside, I, you know, I began to look into, you know, Vedanta Hinduism and Buddhism. And from that point of view, I would say just, you know, the folk Buddhism as it's commonly understood, at least here in the West, is more conducive to producing contentment, mm -hmm. maybe more than happiness, contentment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I've known a lot of Christians who have been extremely content and very happy. So I think the message can be or is contained in everything if you just know how to do it. But, you know, again, like so many other things in our society, it's about competition. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can be more Christian than you because I pray more often or mm -hmm. I give more to the church. I grew up in a mm -hmm. really an evangelical church. And so I remember that feeling of competition where it was like, you need to go out and save people. Yeah. And those people that I never saved one person. I was like, oh, she's being way. really good again. And I'm not <laughs> being good enough. <laughs> I know. They're like, no, you are in a lifeboat and everybody else around you is drowning. Pull them into the lifeboat. <laughs> I didn't pull in one person. I'd carry my Bible and no one wanted to talk to me. <laughs> But I did. It did feel that way. It did mm -hmm. feel very competitive, and and the competition to be holy and to save yourself from marriage didn't do that one either. <laughs> but so is that what we're? Is that why you're so happy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but is, is that part of it? Where like, despite all of those things and which um, spiritual path you choose, like, is that the human piece of it where we cannot avoid being competitive? Or no? I don't even think that's necessarily the case. Okay. I mean, com com competition is a part of our society. Mm -hmm. Again, to, to use the anthropological yeah. perspective, right? We go back far enough in time. This, this whole way of life that, that we're living is very, very new. And many anthropologists will date the time of change, or you could say the beginning of the end, to when humans began to domesticate plants and animals, which is what we call the Neolithic or agricultural mm -hmm. revolution. And you can ballpark it if you want a nice and easy number about 10,000 years ago. Okay. Wow. So before that time, people were living on the land, gathering the food that was available there. So you hear things about paleo diet, right? Yeah. That's already kind of... Um, a Western misunderstanding. Guilty. Yeah. This well, one over here. <laughs> here's some nuts. Here's some berries. No, thanks. No, that's good. But that assumes you grew up in a society with nuts and berries. What if you grew up on a tropical island and then you eat fish? That's your paleo diet. Right, right. So just like there's no one size fits all with regard to other things, diet comes in. So imagine we're living, we're gathering from 
what's around us. It's seasonal. Some seasons are really good. Some seasons aren't. If you grew up in a place like Ventura County, almost all the seasons were kosher, right? It was great. If you grew up in way up in the Arctic, you were hand to mouth every day, and a lot of times mm. you didn't make it. You're probably so skinny and hot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All tens. All tens. All tens. All covered up with lots of animal skins. Ooh, fancy. <laughs> Sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Get me a. What is it? Is it a, a fur seal? covered no, I don't want a seal. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. Polar bear tuck. <laughs> yeah, polar. So much hot. polar bear hat. Yeah. Anyway. Whatever works, right? <sighs> so. So think about it. Back in the and again, this goes back to uh, the podcast that I was listening to on the way down that you guys did mm. um, with your psychologist friend from UCLA talking about a small group of friends and things like that. Yeah. According to this way of looking at things, we spent almost all of our existence living in small groups where everybody knew everybody. We're talking about depends on you know in specific environmental conditions, mm-hmm. but. Groups of anywhere from maybe 100 to 500. And there would be like my group over here and all these people are related to me. So I have to marry somebody from that group over there because they're all related and they marry somebody from my group. So we all know each other. We know the nice people, the, the grumpy people and all that kind of stuff. But that's what it's all about. And you put the food on the table. In Ven- so, for example, in Ventura County, where I live now, when I moved there, I had to study the – I thought it was important to study the local people that lived there before we destroyed them. And <laughs> they worked on average throughout the year three to four hours a day. And they're living a California beach lifestyle. They're probably so happy. Chill, Probably. Chill. Yeah. So the rest of the time, what did they got to do? They got to socialize. They got to have rituals. They spent time down at the beach. They hung out with each other. But they still created this competitive thing. They were beginning to turn into this society of of a hierarchy. So some people were cooler than others, (laughs) right? And that's what we seem to have really done. Think about 10,000 years. If you take, you know, it's not the case with us anymore, but let's say you take 20 years as a generation, right? Time Mm -hmm, you're born to mm -hmm. the time you have your first kid, 20 years. Divide 10,000 by 20. That's 500 generations that we've been living this crazy lifestyle versus hundreds of thousands of generations that we were living a different lifestyle. Yeah. And so you wonder why happiness is something that we're chasing all the time. A lot of people would say we're out of sync with what we are. This lifestyle is completely inconsistent with our biology. Yeah. So I'm... I love that you said inconsistent because I'm wondering as far as instant gratification and the dopamine thing to mm-hmm. go back to that, does anything going back all those years parallel what is instantly gratifying for us today, a.k.a. social media? Like that's totally unnatural, right? Or is it more natural than we realize? Well, again, there's natural. There's another trap of the word natural, right? Mm. I mean, we tend to think of natural as anything humans don't do, but humans are products of nature. Mm. So what... Mm. Oh, like they're furrowed brows in this room. There are deep thoughts That's going on. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's look at, let's start with a real simple animal, like a, like a lizard, right? Lizards, as far as we can tell, have a really simple gig, right? They sleep in the same place pretty much every night. When the weather gets and the temperature gets, they get up, 
They go out, they poop, they look for something to eat, they hang out in the sun, they cruise around, they poop again, they get some more, <laughs> and they get their afternoon food, and they go back. Sounds like my husband. Yeah. <laughs> and why not? We even we even have what's called a reptilian brain. That's right. So so wow. we have this very simple cycle. And then you throw the whole mammal thing on top, right? Mm. And mammals have this limbic system. So we have the emotional brain, mm -hmm. which is where the happiness is coming mm -hmm. from, right? So we have all of a sudden all these different connections. And you mentioned dopamine, but the big one, of course, is oxytocin. Oh, don't you just love oxytocin? <laughs> it gets released when you have sex, yeah. right? And when you nurse your baby and oh, when you're pregnant, that's right. it's, it's, considered, it's considered the attachment mechanism. So, you know, you're talking about relating to other people. Mm -hmm. In a certain sense, if you want to talk about happiness, are they helping you release oxytocin? Mm -hmm. And are you helping them? There's even some clinical trials going on right now with certain kinds of um, psychological issues. You'd have to talk to a psychologist about this mm -hmm. to get the right details. But they've got oxytocin that can be taken in, I believe, as a nasal spray. Hmm. And when you take that in, oh all of a sudden it improves your outlook. I mean, we are biochemical machines to a very mm -hmm. large degree, right? Yeah. So now we've got this emotional connection. And you can see it in wolves and dogs and seals and whales and stuff. And then you throw on top of it this neocortex, which is our most recent evolutionary achievement. Mm -hmm. And to put it very simply, what the neocortex is doing is putting a conceptual framework on top of the feelings. So the happiness is kind of, how can I say, it's more deeply rooted. Mm -hmm. But what we think we need to do to be happy is programmed. Makes so much sense. And you would say also impacted by our culture as mm -hmm. well. That's, who where, that's the, the primary report. program right there. Yeah. Right? Expectations. So, so you come back to social media. If I want to be happy today and I'm a young millennial, which I'm not, <laughs> then I think it's really important to have validation. Wow, I'm drinking this really nice cappuccino. And did I mention, by the way, it's what is this, a grande? A it's venti? the largest one. It's, it's the, the largest one. and most expensive mm -hmm. one. So somehow or other, my presence here has been valued. Yeah. And I feel validated. And if I take a picture and upload it to your Instagram account and it gets 20 likes, we're validated. You're on fire today. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we all got our little headphones sitting around our <laughs> Pentagon-shaped, what a strange table, <laughs> Pentagon-shaped table. And all of a sudden, everybody's really cool. I don't – I'm on social media a little bit. I use Facebook. I don't use Facebook to tell people what kind of tofu burger I'm eating today. I don't need that for my validation. Mm -hmm. What I post on Facebook are things I think are important, which is probably why I'm going to get unfriended a lot, <laughs> which primarily has to do with political events and, and yeah. climate change and stuff. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. what I think. I don't need a picture of my puppy up there for everybody, mm -hmm. right? I mean mm -hmm. personally. Oh, I agree. But mm -hmm. you – let me turn the tables a little because anthropologists ask questions. You're both obviously on social media. You're children of the modern age, right? <laughs> yes. Millennials? Millennials. Guilty? Unfortunately. We're yes. at the very top of it, though. Yeah, we're cusp. Cusp millennials. Cusp millennials. Yeah. Um, yeah, we both have social media. I mean, I don't think, you know, because I'm a comedian, I, I, I feel like it's very necessary. And so I wonder... If I if I if I wasn't doing that, if I would even keep it still, because I I really only see about six friends consistently right. in my personal mm -hmm. life. I don't need all of that. 
I'm pretty similar. Um, as a wedding photographer, I do feel it's a necessity. I, my, my competitors are all Instagrammers and I need to keep mm. up and there's a whole science to it. But in all honesty, I don't think I would use it as my communication method, as how I keep in touch. Like I just would much rather be in person right. and make a phone call or write a letter, honestly. Writing so. a letter, there's a lost art. <laughs> yeah. I just never feel like I don't, I don't get that same validation from Facebook and I don't feel the need to put it out there the same way. I think it's overwhelming and I yeah. think it's a crutch really. Yeah. And well, I mean, I'm, I went on Facebook or established an account because, you know, as a, as a community college instructor, mm-hmm. I had students who wanted to know if I was on it. And so again, I see the network the, mm-hmm. and the social aspect of it, but yeah, deep relationships, mm-hmm. those happen other places, right? Yeah. And yeah, through other agree. through other medium. And the problem with the social media, and it even starts with texting, is this it comes back to instantaneous, right? I sent a text off to you like ten minutes ago. Remember mm-hmm. letters? Maybe yep. when you were a little girl you wrote letters. Mm-hmm. You t- the whole act of writing it, putting it in the envelope, yes. taking it to the mailbox, do we have a stamp? Sending it off, not knowing exactly how sure it's going to take to get to Des Moines. And then, <laughs> yeah. do they get it the first day? Do they read it? Do they put some thought into it? Do they just, and then, you know, so you didn't even expect a response for two weeks. Totally. I mean, we, okay, mm-hmm. so we were watching Lady Bird. Loved it. And it was set uh, 10 years ago. So it was mm-hmm. our, when we, when we were in high school. And it was so funny because my brother and my sister are 10 years younger than I am. Right, so they're twenty, and when you and Allie, you and I were applying for colleges, just mm-hmm. like the main character in Lady Bird, you would apply and you'd send in your application, and mm-hmm. then if you got a large letter back, that means you got in. If you got a small one, you're a loser. Wasn't looking good. No, wasn't looking good. <laughs> um, but my brother and my sister don't have. It was all online, mm-hmm. all submitted, and you get like some sort of email notification or you log in. Mm-hmm. Just the, I just remember going for jogs, and I'd be like, okay, maybe I'll get in, maybe I'll check mm-hmm. the mailbox and get back from this jog. I would time it so it'd be with the man comes with the ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, that whole thing's gone. Totally. Gone. And that I, uh, experience. Uh, what's it called? You said Des Moines. Like, how long is it going to take to get there? I'm less inclined to look up where that is compared to when I was mailing the letter, getting the address, wondering how long. Like, I was inclined to go get more information. And now it's like, wait for the email, wait for the number, the tracking right. number. Like, it's just so boom, boom, done. Like, where where is that? The value is different. It's different. It's different. And so. But it... I, I would hesitate to say it's better or worse. So, you know, you want to talk about happiness. And I think happiness has to be found in the context of when we're living, right? So I brought all that stuff in about, you know, where humans come from mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of simplistic animal models just to kind of show that that's where we're coming from. But the, the thing about humans is we have this enormous plasticity, right? And... You grow up in a particular time and place, and and yes, your gut might be saying, you know, I really don't like eating Twinkies and McDonald's French fries all the time because I feel crappy. Mm -hmm. Your gut might like the nuts and berries, (laughs) but your brain has been raised on a different diet. Mm -hmm. So I like to say we can change our minds faster than we can change our bodies now. Wow. And that's part of where we're getting out of sync because, you know, people are coming up with new products, new stuff that we have to eat. And of course, paleo is the buzzword of the decade <laughs> and it'll be something else later. Mm-hmm. And 
we just latch on to it and we feel validated. We feel connected because, wow, all my other friends are paleo or I can join a, I can join a paleo club. It's a thing. Yeah. And Identity belongs. Mm-hmm. Right. And humans, that's the other part of being human. As primates, this goes, goes to our apes and monkeys. A big part of how we, I don't even want to use the word understand ourselves because that gets into a whole different ball game when we're talking about monkeys and things like that. But yeah. a big part is our social network. And so one of the functions of you mentioned Christianity, Buddhism, and traditional societies, or if you go back far enough, being a man or a woman, right, you know, to make it real simple, mm-hmm. the men were the ones typically that went out and hunted and killed the big mm-hmm. sexy animals, like wow, mastodon, right? <laughs> the women killed the small animals because you had to have the you carried the kids around and all that. But you know, to be fair and to be honest, in most societies, the 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 women provided the bulk of the food and did the bulk of the work, right? I still can't figure out talking about happiness how you guys <laughs> let it slip away, right? I just, it's our fault. It's our fault. <laughs> 